save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knife Talk is sponsored by Evenheat, the manufacturer of the finest knife heat treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. Welcome to Knife Talk. I'm with the great Craig Lockwood and Mareko Momasi. We're here to beat your ears in with knife talk. How's that for intro? Beat your ears in. That's, that's a, a new strap line for us. Well, mm-hmm. you know, or something. Or light your head on fire with information. How's that? No, we don't, we don't want to cause violence to people. Come on. No hurt. No hurting All people. right, we'll squeeze you tight with our knife talk. <laughs> no, knife is that talk not good? tongs. All right, all right. I'll be done with that. Yeah, no violence. There's, <laughs> there's been a lot of love for the show, actually, over the last week. So, yeah, I'm really thankful for everybody who's listening, anybody who's posting in the forum, anybody who's contacting us on Instagram. It's really nice to hear the love. So thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, they, things have been coming in. I've been getting a lot of really nice messages, and it's been it's been fantastic. So I, it's overwhelming a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to jump nice. straight in, actually, because listening to last week's um, episode, we talked a lot about knife makers, and sometimes we're using the, the, the phrase bladesmiths or sometimes blacksmiths. And I've had a few, a few people asking what are the difference between those three people. And I think we're a very good example of that. I, I'd class myself as a knife maker. I'd maybe call Mareko a bladesmith and possibly Jeff as a blacksmith. So I think maybe we've got those three bases covered. What do you guys think? Mm. Yeah, I agree. I that sounds accurate. It sounds totally accurate. All of our experiences kind of put us in that position for sure. Yeah. For sure. yeah. Well, I would say I started as a knife maker and graduated to bladesmithing. Hmm. How's that sound? <laughs> to be that sounds super good. accurate. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we all make, we all make knives, but you know, we, we have different ways of doing it. So for those asking, for you know, sure. what are the differences? It's, it's just, no, it's just the way we do it. It's all, yeah, but it's absolutely. all coming from the same spot. I mean, if you take what the, you know, there's not, what blacksmiths do, you know, blacksmithing is the, is the giant umbrella and bladesmithing is more of a specialty. But the funny thing is, is when we were talking about this and the more that we go into this, bladesmithing is much more of a specialty because the knife making part is far more, uh, there's more knife making than there is actually forging. Hmm. So it's sure. a smaller, you know, the, the knife making part is much more. Uh, more almost more important because there's more of that than the grinding and the finishing and the fit and finish than the actual mm. forging. The forging is such a small part, you know. Yes, definitely a subgenre. If you think about it in uh, like Japanese culture too, traditionally speaking, uh, you know they have 
they have the whole process of knife making broken down amongst different schools of and 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 generational tracks mm. so you have people that just do the bladesmithing and then you have people who just do the grinding and then you have people who do just the handling and you have so on and so forth there are very few there i think there's definitely one or two that do all of it but for the most part everybody is super specialized and so yeah so bladesmithing i i would agree is definitely a kind of a, a subgenre of blacksmithing exactly perfect Hmm. Okay, okay. There you go. Problem solved. Problem solved. Problem solved. All those questions <laughs> coming in, we've, we've got you sorted. Now, at the very top of the show, Mareko and there was a few bloopers. We may, we may hear them one day. There's a few bloopers <laughs> of Mareko reading the sponsor intro from Evenheat. That's what I'm good for. He did a good job. He was a good you job. Know, this this good isn't, job. you know, not easy. <laughs> but we're, we're really pleased that we've, we've been contacted by um, a distributor of Even He Devons. Um, and we've got a special offer for, for all of our listeners. So, I mean, if you're making a knife, oh. you're going to need an even heat. You know, we all, we've all got even heats. And without an even heat, you, you're just making a pointy object, you know. So, Soul Ceramics have got in touch. They're a, a distributor based in New York, um, and they're going to give a discount to all of our listeners. So, they're going to give... Very good. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. So, they're going to give $50 off any kiln that's ordered, but they've already got probably the best prices for an even heat oven anyway. So, if you go to mm, nice. soulceramics.com forward slash knife and talk... Um, which is us? We're knife talk. Um, you're gonna get you're gonna get that discount. So so show them some love. They're Soul Ceramics on Instagram. Um, not only do they do knife heat treat ovens, they also do stuff for ceramics as well. So if you've got an even heat, why not throw a plate? Why not throw a pot as well? It's gonna go in your even heat. It's gonna sure. work. So so that's great. We can offer our our listeners um, some discount. I think it's awesome to get, it. especially you know, it. This craft is it's hard to make a super huge living from it so everybody i feel like is very bootstrap budgets when it comes to doing this stuff and so any little bit that helps keep those prices down the better but i'll tell you what like before obviously you can get a lot of people get great results out of off of a torch or out of the forge and i even still practice heat treating out of a forge but until i got my even heat uh heat treating kiln when i first started you know variability is up there but if you want to become more consistent you want to up your game you definitely want to get into a heat treating kiln and like i said i've started and worked for uh worked with a heat uh even heat kiln you know pretty much my whole time doing this on my own and uh it is definitely really taken my game to the next level especially when it comes to consistency well, you know, yeah, I, you know yeah. it's, it's very interesting that you mention all this because I got a message from a, from a follower interested in getting a, an oven. And he sent me a picture that he had found on Craigslist of someone selling an even heat um, for $500, right? And I looked at the picture and I realized, oh, this is an old um, port, um, pottery kiln from even heat really old it's one of those ones you see in high school or something where you're like lowering stuff in and he said what do you think of this and i said well here's what you should do i said i don't personally i don't know enough about pottery but i'm assuming 
that it doesn't go up to the temperature that you're going to need to 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 make knives. You know, especially stainless steel knives. What you should do is you should go to Even Heat um, the, the the website and see what that model can do. And the, the 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 so and we realized he's like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. He 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 almost got something used. It really wasn't what's going to work for him. But he we used the Even Heat website to kind of like figure out if this is a kiln that can be used or not. They're great. And and what I ended up saying to him was, look, you know, you do whatever it takes. You know, you, you don't have, you know, but but if you're going to, you know, get a good kiln, I love those guys that even heat. They're, they're, you can get a hold of them, you know, at night. They're, they're, they're on the ball. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm always asked that same question. If you're going to start making knives, what equipment do you need? And I think we sort of covered this last week. But for me, it's a, it's a grinder. It's a drill press. And it's an oven. I, I also I also noticed that one thing that I thought I'd add was that a lot of people get very nervous about making the transition from from carbon steel to stainless because the temperature is hotter and hard and harder. It's harder and it's hotter to make um, stainless steel knives. Mm. If you want to make that transition and you're not 100% sure if you're ready to buy a kiln, you can also send stuff out to be heat treated. That was one thing I realized that if you're really trying to make a knife on a budget and you're trying to figure out, well, I want to make knives, but I'm not 100% sure I'm ready to afford a kiln yet, you can go send stuff out to get heat treated uh, professionally. Hmm. And, and, and then all of a sudden, mm-hmm. your, your costs do, you know, you're not having to, you're going to make a decision if you want to make stainless steel knives. You send your stuff out to get heat treated, and then, you know, it might take, you know, they, they tell you what their specifications are, they'll tell you how they want it sent, and then, you know, you can make three or four knives, and then you can make the decision, oh, yeah, you know what, I, I need to do this more often, and then you get yourself an oven, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think also the, the other benefit of, uh, what we're building in the forum is developing relationships. And if somebody that you have a relationship with through the forum is willing to help you out with heat treating, like that also might be another route uh, to go by That's establishing perfect. those. Yeah. And, uh, you know, using the postal, the postal service, they'll take care of what, you. <laughs> what's the web? What's the, how do you get onto that forum again, Craig? Um, knifetalk.net forward slash forum. And, and actually talking about equipment, I've just added a, a supplier list as well to knifetalk.net. So we've got a bunch of suppliers mm-hmm. there. So if you're just getting into making knives um, and you want to know where you do, you know, where to buy belts, where to buy grinders, whatever it may be, um, we're hoping to have a sort of fully comprehensive list there of just this one place you can go to and you'll be able to find everything that you need. That's fantastic. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, you know, we're a good we're a good community here and we're trying to keep it that way. Well, and I know myself, like when I first started, I really relied on lists like that especially when it came to resourcing you know everything you need just like you were saying uh and also figuring out you know who who sells all like this you know there are a lot of different places to buy belts and so jumping around and being able to have them filtered down yeah uh, to like maybe the top three or four to buy from uh really helps a lot and belts are very confusing you know, oh, that, sure. I had a conversation with a belt company, and they were just talking about how when people first start out, they have no idea what to do. There's no progression that's just a standard progression, you know? Hmm. Yeah. That could that could be a whole show on its own, I think. You know, belt progression oh. and different types of belts, that kind of thing. If that's a Jeff Investigates, I'm going to burn you. I'm going to burn you. <laughs> I don't know if I can do a whole Jeff Investigates we, we, on belts. We might need a special guest to who really knows that stuff to come on. Quite possibly. That's a good but idea. Talking, that's a good about, idea. talking about Jeff Investigates... Jeff investigates. 
Jesus Christ. I'm not, I don't know if I'm ever going to get comfortable with that. I know, I, I know it. I know you're going to do it, and I think it's great, but... Uh, we had I'm a lot you. of love for the jingles last week. A lot of love. I, yeah, I love I'm it. sure you did by a bunch of by a bunch of uh, homunculus. That's what it was from. <laughs> a bunch of bunch of crazy people who like that stuff. All right, that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, last week's Jeff investigates. Don't 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 was really fun for me. But the funny thing is, is when I did the thing about hammers, I didn't expect to get all these people to 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 respond. So what I did this time was I decided, well, if we're and and we're going to keep this qu- quick. To, you know how I do, and we'll see how quick it goes. But what I thought was we would talk about anvils. We're going to talk about hammers last week. We're going to talk about anvils uh, this week. And instead of in telling, getting a million people to tell me what they do, I reached out to three people um, about anvils. And these people are, are amazing. And one of them is Justin Morrell. He's the president of the NEB. That's the New England blacksmiths. He's a, like a second generation blacksmith. He and his brother and his dad run uh, Morell Metalsmiths in Massachusetts. I also talked to Jesse Savage of Jesse Savage Blacksmith, who is the um, podcast uh, co-host of uh, the Blacksmith's Pub. By the way, there go listen to the Blacksmith's Pub. They're about to have the interview of interviews. I can't talk about it. I'm not supposed to talk about it, but they're going to have a <laughs> huge interview coming up. I'm not even kidding. This is crazy, but that's going to that. And then I talked to Is it to just C- you? Pub. <laughs> no, it's nothing to do with me, but I'm telling you what, you, all the jokes aside, when you hear it's going to be by Monday, by this coming, this is going to, by today, you're listening to this today, you're going to know, you're going to know it's going to be big. All right. So what I did was we, um, we posted on the Instagram, uh, ask questions about an- anvil questions. And I ended up getting the perfect questions to be answered. So I figured what we'd do is we'd ask people's questions, and I'd answer them with the information that I've received from Justin, Jesse, and myself. And please, Mareko, uh, feel free to hop in at any point. Yeah. And we're going to talk anvils. Cool. Let's do it. Cool. All right. Okay. So we've had, I mean, lots of questions coming through Instagram and the forum. The first was Josh Scott, and he asked the ideal size and weight of an anvil for a beginner. Well, the the funny thing is, is I have two 130-pound anvils. And 130, 130 to 150-pound anvils are great anvils to grow into. And when you talk about all these old anvils, that size is – we're talking about old anvils that you'd find at a flea market or an antique store. Those anvils are much more common because they were a lot more made – back in the day for farmers as a utility tool. So if you talk, you, you want to talk about what a guy who has got a farm, they're not going to go to the hardware store, they have a small anvil, they want something that they can kind of move around. 130 pounders, 150 pounders are much more common. Um, and it doesn't, one of the great things is about that size, is obviously you can move it around. It's more than enough room. I think that it's a great anvil um, in general. And with when you're buying old anvils, they don't as long as they're in good shape, they don't depreciate in value. And mm-hmm. when I talked to Justin about that size, that particular size, he estimates a good a good anvil, meaning that it's not too cracked up, it doesn't have too much sway. And we're going to talk about what that is. The horn's in good shape; it's not chipped up; it's you know in good shape. It'll probably be between five fifty to seven fifty, which isn't crazy considering a brand new anvil from these anvil companies is like you're talking at least a thousand bucks yeah uh, what's that pound by or weight or sorry price by pound 
you know, I used to ask, I used to think, I used, it's funny because I asked them that too, because when I bought my anvils, I would always think about it price per pound. That price per pound thing, you got to, you got to kind of throw it out the window because there's just too many variables. Um, when I bought my first Fisher from, um, Matt, it was a 120 pounder. I was thinking I was paying like $4 a pound or something like that. But when I asked these guys about it, they said, you got to throw that out the window. Those days are over. You have to, it's really, you know, it's, it depends. It depends. And we're going to talk about uh, the different types of people who sell anvils and, and then probably in the next questions. But yeah, I, I, I thought the same thing. What's a good price per pounder. It's really kind of, it doesn't really work. Jesse should, uh, put together a Kelly, uh, Kelly Blue Book style pricing list. We're uh, actually for talking. We're actually oh, talking about shit. like doing not the book. Well, I actually talked to him about doing a book. He he actually uh, suggested there's a book called Anvils in America by I think it's Richard Post. I think that's what he said. Richard Post. It's a really great book. I just ordered it. Didn't come in time for this episode, but we're actually talking about doing a more in depth Anvil episode of the Knife of Blacksmith's Pub and. But this is, I wanted this to be a primer for people who ask us questions, so I'm, I'm trying yeah. to. But, yo, you're absolutely right. We've got, we got more answers for you. Right. I love it. So Marlborough Handcraft asked things to look out for when buying a used anvil. Okay. The first thing, and it's the most important thing, is you really want to educate yourself on what you're looking at. You should try to know the difference between what a cast iron anvil that has a, fo- a forged, uh, I mean, a cast, a cast iron bodied anvil and the, with a forged welded face like a Fisher versus um, some of those have, you know, almost no ring when you hit them. And you can tell um, with a cast anvil because they have signs like the touch mark is raised. It's not incised. And you should tell the difference between a cast iron anvil and a forged wrought iron anvil body with a forged welded face, like a Heybuden. The Heybudens have, they're more, uh, you can tell that they're forged because their touch mark is incised, like a, you would use, you know, you, it, they're incised, they're not, the touch mark isn't raised. Um, they also have like, you'll see a, a forged anvil will have little holes on the side of the waist, and those holes that you don't have no idea what they look like, hardy holes, but they're not, they're actually where the tongs used to go when they were forging the bodies. They could hold the anvil on the, on the side when they were putting them under their giant presses to make them it's Whoa. good to know it's good That's to crazy. know yeah it's crazy like i always used to just look at these holes i'm like why are there holes on the sides it's like it's for the, <laughs> it's for the tongs to pick them up um the other thing is is when you're going to flea markets um you should you should know that a lot of these guys have no experience as blacksmiths and they don't know what's good and what's not good. So it's very easy for you to be able to see if, if an anvil's really chipped up with the edges, if it's got it's just so much rust that you're going to have to do so much work, if the horn's busted off. Uh, you, you'll have, if, the more information you have in regards to what you're looking at, the more you can say, hey, look, I know what you got there. I know that anvils are really hot and they're really one of those things that, you know, people can, you know, they can charge whatever they want, but you're charging too much because of this, this, and that. It actually happened to me. Right. A friend of mine was selling an anvil. It was, I asked him what the price was. He gave me a kind of a high, high price. And I was just like, whoa, that's, that's a lot more than I was expecting. And then he came back and said to me, well, what would you charge for it? So then there's a little – if you have more information in regards to what, um, what, what you should be looking – what you're looking at, if you know that, hey, that, that's a, you know, a Harbor Freight cast iron anvil from China, you can't charge $500 for that. You can, the more information you have, the easier it is going to be for someone to, um, you know, to, to be educate yourself. The other yeah, thing absolutely. is 
what Jesse does is he creates relationships with the um, deal, a lot of antique dealers. He goes and he talks to them. He beca- he's become such an expert on anvils that they call him when he, they get stuff in. And then he, a lot of times he'll actually get the first crack at some of these anvils because he's very helpful. And being yeah. nice to people, being respectful, not showing up and you know, you know, being like a big shot – you you when you're nice to people it it you you open your the door into maybe getting a better um an option which always pays off but the most Absolutely. important thing is is educating yourself on what you're looking at because most of those guys they just see money they don't realize mm-hmm. hey, well they don't know about what you're looking at you know it, it's unfortunate about especially like uh antique stores they have a bunch of this great old stuff but because it's seen as um kind of art in a way and and not necessarily the functional thing. Very few places I feel like actually price on the actual functionality of some of the stuff that Zero. they're selling. And so that's part of the issue is they're like, oh, some super rich person is going to walk in and see this whatever, like two-man crosscut saw blade or right. an anvil or a wrought iron wagon wheel and I can charge them this much. And it's like. Ugh. Yeah, it's a yeah. it's a bummer because there are people who could really really use those tools, but when they're priced like double or three times what they're really probably valued at, that mm. makes it hard. Well, it's it's also don't buy an, an anvil on Madison Avenue. You know, it's like you know if you're, if you're up in if you're up in New England, they're lousy. It's like I call it I call New England uh, an anvil orchard because you know you can just trip down the street and on an anvil. There are anvils all over the place, but around yeah. here in the Trice area, it's kind of harder to find. But the real thing is is understand what you're looking for, and we're going to get into some more yeah. understanding of that. But that's that's sure, the sure. most important thing. Yeah, I mean, so you mentioned, you know, maybe an old rusty anvil or one with chipped edges. What are the things that you should just walk away from? I mean, is rust a problem? Is a chipped edge a problem? Uh, no, no, Ch- chipped edges. You know, chip edges. The walking away from is based on the price. Like mm. the walking away. If you're looking at something with the horns busted off, or somebody used a uh, acetylene torch, or used it as a welding table. I've seen I've seen people use the uh, <laughs> uh, um, an anvil as a welding table. That might, if it's too much work for you, then that's a that's a problem, you know. But uh, you know, usually the one thing you should walk away from are these cheap cast iron anvils. The best cast iron anvil are uh, Fishers. I have a Fisher. I love Fishers. They're considered some of the best cast bodied uh, anvils. Um, I think you should stay away from you know, if it if it looks good too too good to be true, probably walk away from it. But usually, a lot of times people don't know what they have. Hmm. If it's if you, if it's something you can't fix, and I think in the next question by Ed Jits, I'll be able to explain dealing with the chips and and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Ed, Ed's he's contacted us a few times with questions, always really sensible questions, but he's asking any way yeah. to fix up a beat up anvil. Well, a first things first is don't just grab a grinding rock on your right angle grinder. A lot what it, a lot of times what you want to do is. You have to kind of see what is going on first. I know that he mentioned at one point, can you should you get a put it on a mill and have the face uh, resurfaced? You got to make sure that you have enough of that hard face on the. If you have to take off at half an inch of material, that's probably not the best decision. And all of a sudden, you're going to end up with like a quarter inch of of flat, you know, hardened steel. Uh, I actually for. Repair, for repairing an anvil, I talked to Cliff Dufton, who who repaired my anvil. Uh, I had my chip, my uh, cast uh, fisher, the horn busted off, and it was because the, it, the, it wasn't a good forge weld or whatever, and he fixed it, and this is what he said. 
Um, uh, dep- it all depends on the type of anvil, but generally you want to preheat and grind out any cracks and make sure all the areas to be welded are clean metal. Cast iron bodies may require building up with nickel rod before the hard facing rod. Small nickel beads. Now, now I'm gonna stop it right here. Don't get your don't get your shitty 120 mig with the flux core and think you're gonna fix this anvil with your hey. bullshit with your bullshit Harbor Freight welder. You gotta have a good arc welder and you gotta get the right um, ar- uh, electrodes. You want uh, nickel. Uh, I don't know exactly what the type, but you're gonna want a nickel nickel um, electrodes and you're gonna want hard face. And I don't know what hard face is. I'll find out and put it on the form from. So small nickel beads permeating between each pass, which releases the stress from the shrinking weld. You know, when you weld and you, it cools down, it shrinks. The nickel's going to kind of like prevent a lot of that shrinking. Then you, uh, when you use that nickel rod, you're actually going to peen that weld, ha, 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 because it <laughs> stretches and it releases a little bit of the stress. So you're doing passes and passes of the nickel rod with the... Um, uh, with the hard face rod, hard facing rod, and then the cast iron's pro di- p- very prone to cracking. If you've ever welded cast iron, it hates being welded. So what you want to do is you want to really keep it slow when you're when you're letting it cool down. You don't want to just you know obviously not going to quench it, and you're not going to let it air dry. You throw a little bit of a welding blanket on top, vermiculite ashes on top, or you you know put a ceramic blanket, and you want it to cool very slowly. And it's a hard process. Um, generally speaking, what he said, you know, you want to get the right guy to, to, if you're going to weld up the corners. The other thing is, is you want to stay away from those grinding rocks. The best thing is they're flap discs because they're much, flap discs are much more gentle and you want to just, you know, want to be easy. I've seen some guys, they get a, they get a wire wheel and they get a flap disc and they think that's all you want to do. When you're fixing your corners, if the, if the corners aren't too bad, you want to gently radius them because very much like in the last episode, we were talking about um, hammers. You want to chase this, the, the edges. Mm. You want to dress the edges. You also want to dress the edges of the anvil. You, don't, you, may, you might want three inches of a very sharp corner. And then on, on the other side of the anvil, you want a three inches of a radius corner because when you're incising with those corners, that makes a difference. So if they're all chipped up and cracked, you're going to embed that chip and crack uh, into whatever you're forging. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. makes sense. It can be yeah. done. You just got to know what you're doing. You just don't don't keep that flux core out of here. Don't don't <laughs> don't bring that in. Alicanda 4600. So uh, I think he's an Atari fan. That was an Atari 4600, wasn't it? Um, he asked, where can you... 3600, Craig, come on. 4600, surely. No, no, it's 3600. Atari 3600. Okay, okay. He's showing your right. age, Jeff. Sorry. Showing your age. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, <laughs> he asked, well, where that. can I get an anvil? All right, so Jesse's, what Jesse says is Jesse Savage is always on Craigslist, and he's always on Craigslist and eBay. And what he says is uh, you want to look at, if you besides flea markets and antique stores, go to your local Craigslist and, e- and eBay. Jesse turned me on to a seller on eBay named Matchless Antiques, and that dude has a pile of crisp old anvils that look beautiful. You can get an idea of the pricing. Um, going local Craigslist is really, really good, especially considering, you know, shipping an anvil is probably not what you want to be doing. A uh, 150-pound anvil ain't going to be cheap to ship, uh, let alone 300-pound anvil. So if you're using your local Craigslist, you can kind of see what's going on. Mm. The other thing is, is when you're looking for an anvil, 
don't go into buying an anvil like you're looking for a girlfriend or a boyfriend. You know, you want to like, you know, when you're all fired <laughs> up and hot and you want to get, you want, I want a boy, I want someone to love. Don't do that with an anvil because otherwise what's going to happen is you're going to get something you, you think that you wanted and then you're waking up the next morning next to some cracked ass anvil that you don't love you anymore. And all of a sudden you're just like, get me out of this relationship. I hate, I hate myself and I hate this anvil. <laughs> so last thing about that. You don't have to buy an old anvil. You can just say, you know what? I got money, man. I don't want to deal with this. There are great companies out there making anvils right now that you can just say, I want to buy love. I don't want to wait around. I want to buy my love. So like companies Mail like order. Petty. Yeah, no problem. Just do it. Just, you know, I don't, I'm not looking around on Craigslist. What do I look like? Crazy person? You just, you can get, you know, Petting House makes anvils. Uh, there's a company called Fontanini. They used to make, they was, used to be Rat Hole. They make great um they make great uh, anvils. Emerson is a company that makes smaller anvils for farriers. A farrier's anvil might be a good idea if you're a, if you're looking for the first anvil, because farrier's anvils have to be moved because these guys are moving around a lot a lot of the time. Mm. So you can get a, a pretty good farrier anvil for under you know under a hundred pounds. That's a good idea. Um, Bob Rankin also told me that there's this new company in Michigan called Holland Anvils. They're making awesome anvils. Most of the anvils that are being made now are less for farriers and more for blacksmiths. So a blacksmith's anvil, like a European-style anvils, have they're tricked out with these bullshit. You know I'm talking about Rick Barter. They're talking about the bullshit side shelves. You don't need those, but they do them. The upsetting <laughs> blocks on the bottom, they throw a lot of, they don't put a, they don't have a step down the table to the horn. It's all flat. It's more for blacksmiths. It doesn't look like the London pattern anvil that you're used to from Bugs Bunny. That's what I have to say about that. Okay. One more, I wanted to add uh, about where you can get anvils. Uh, my anvil actually came off of the back of somebody's truck who showed up to a blacksmithing conference in Longview, Washington. So whenever those conferences are going on, there are definitely people that show up to kind of sell off the back of their trucks in the parking lot. And I got my two, I think it's a 210, 220 Peter Wright for $275. Oh which is my God. Steal. Jesse just, his head just blew off his skull. <laughs> and I just that shit his pants. is, I want a Peter Wright so bad. That's the first, that's the first company that made that London pattern anvil. But $200 for a 200 pound anvil. Oh my yeah. God. It's unheard of. That is that is for guys Ooh, listening to this lucky. podcast. You ain't gonna that ain't that ain't happening very often unless your unless your grandma unless your grandma wants you to get rid of her anvil and she's gonna give you you gonna give her two hundred bucks. That's <laughs> well, unbelievable. Where, where the conference is held is kind of in an, a, a bit of a rural area, kind of, and so what people are going through is their old barns and their family properties. They have all these different kinds of equipments and tools and stuff they don't need anymore, and they recognize an anvil as a thing that's definitely useful and uh so they show up to that thing to that conference Dang. and the conferences and gatherings are happening all the time all kinds of swap meets and whatnot and so it's locating one near you um there might be an opportunity for a score there oh my god Good point. 200 pound Good peter point. right 200 peter right all right okay we've got three more listener questions about anvil so we're gonna we're gonna rapid fire okay. through these jeff you ready rapid can you do rapid yes. fire yes a hundred percent jr palm <laughs> asks um does the anvil weight affect the forging efficiency 
Not really. What affects the, or the, the, what affects the efficiency is what's called rebound. And rebound is really, really interesting. I learned a lot from Justin Morrell. So rebound is uh, basically the kinetic energy that comes off your hammer into the anvil and just fires it back. So sometimes you've seen these videos of these guys dropping a ball bearing on the anvil and you see how far it, it jumps back up. Well, that is a way to see how much rebound that, that it is. And how they do that is they'll take a measuring stick and they'll put it on the top of the anvil. They'll drop a ball bearing on that anvil and then they'll measure how far it goes back. So if you drop it from a foot and it it bounces up to nine inches, then you're, the rebound is 75%. So hmm. what you're looking for is that rebound, it ha- will help you forge because when you hit the when you hit the steel with the anvil, it's gonna f- that, that kinetic energy, is gonna, that rebound is going to fire it back up over your head so you're ready for the next swing what the rebound will also tell you is is if there are any problems with the hammer uh, with the anvil i should say so the, mm. the, if you drop the ball bearing on top of the face of the anvil if there's a crack or there's a delamination between the face plate and the body you or a dead spot like based on where you're dropping it you can find out if there's a problem with that anvil but if you want to, you want an anvil that's got a nice ring. Is you know, it's going to be good for you. Good. You don't need to bring a ball bearing. I tell you what, if you came to my shop with a measuring t- stick and, a, and an anvil, a measuring stick and a ball bearing, I'm going to fuck you up because I, I, you better be, you better be, you better be Francis Whitaker propped up like a weekend at Bernie's. Because I'm going to take that measuring stick, I'm going to shove it up your ass, and I'm going to take that ball bearing, I'm going to shove it up your nose. Because it's very rude to show up with a ball bearing and start dropping it on anvil. So don't do not do it. Just a little tap here, a little tap there with a hammer is going to give you an, an idea. So that's what I have to say about rebound. I think you have another thing to add. I think you're pumped up for this, for this fight tonight, aren't you, Jeff? Yes. Well, I, I, yeah. The I fake wrestling tonight. Up. <laughs> a little bit, a little, a little bit, a little bit. Let's go. Come on, let's go. Let's keep going. Keep going. Running right. Man Forge is asking for the best anvil under £100 with the least ringing. All right. I would go back to, you know, it's hard to find a £100 anvil. Jesse brought a very rare 55-pound hay button to the to Maker's Fair, and it looked like a toy, but it was amazing. Those kinds of anvils are kind of hard to find, mm-hmm. and and you know anvils like uh, hey buttons are going to ring. You you can you all and hey, look you're doing the anvils. It's going to make noise. If you're worried about your neighbors, you might want to think about a different profession. You know what I'm saying? What you need to do is if you could you can look at Farrier's anvils, but also what a great a great thing is um, you can also if you have an anvil and you're worried about the ring, you wrap the anvil with chain. I don't know if you've seen uh, anvils wrapped mm. in chain. It's not just to look tough. Mm. It's basically it kind of mutes <laughs> it mutes the it mutes the, the the ringing it mutes the ring. Also, if you put a, um, a magnet under the horn, that mutes the ringing too. But listen, it's one way or the other. You got to find your anvil first. Don't don't start worrying about how loud it is. The flavor flave anvil. You can <laughs> well, throw a clock on that thing too, right? We, I make a, I make a, yeah, that's right. It's like the Mr. T of anvils. You know, Sunset Forge and I make a joke <laughs> saying that uh, 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 Fisher anvils are notoriously very quiet. We call those city anvils. And the hay buttons are very loud. We call those country <clears throat> anvils. Hmm. So you just got to, you know, if you can find an anvil and, and you're not buying it just because it's loud, God bless you. I'm with you. <laughs> okay. Let's we, go. Rapid fire, baby. Swift Knives UK. Um, if you can't afford an anvil, will just a striking plate, will that be okay for making knives? 
Good question, and the answer is no. Those striking plates are for hammer-making classes and axe-making classes, and the reason why they use them is because they can they know that when you're having a striking plate and you have a student with a sledgehammer, he's going to fuck up your anvil. So what you want to do is, the better thing to do is, instead of a striking plate, is get your, go to a scrapyard and get yourself, or go to a, a, a metal shop and get yourself a uh, you know just a hunk of steel. Hmm. Like four-by-four-inch piece of steel is going to be perfect for you. And mild steel chunks are great because you can fix them easy if they dent you can re-weld them up easy you don't have to fool around and also the parts not going to fly off he was saying that you know if you get a piece of you know railroad track that's fine uh piece of steel i know that guys like will morrison out in australia one of the best knife makers he only he forges on a four by four block of steel and i would you know highly recommend just getting a block of steel and making it happen okay Mm -hmm. Blades of Black asked, what is, the, what is the proper height for an anvil? And that's a great question because all anvils have different heights. What, the rule of thumb generally when you're making a stand, and if you're you know, making a stump of wood or if you're going to make a tripod stand or whatever, tripod stands are great because you can put your feet under them so you're not like hunched over as much. But the rule of thumb is, is if you're standing up straight and you have your arm is, is, is on your side and you make a fist, the height of your knuckles to the floor is the height of where you want the face of your of your anvil. So like between 32 and 30, 31, 32 inches is a great height for just a standard, not striking anvil, just something that you're, you know, you're just, you're feeling comfortable with because you're, you have that full extension of your swing. So 32, you know, basically measure where your knuckles come down the side of your waist, you moron. Go measure it and, and then we'll work it out. <laughs> What if you're a knuckle dragon son of a bitch? Like, <laughs> but then you got you got a low you got a low ass anvil there, Morocco. You got a low you got a low dragger. You got a low ass angle. You got to get some high shoes and you got to get yourself squared away. Get yourself on a ladder, baby. It's generally going to be around in some disco. Around the height of your nuts, basically, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. The height of your nuts. <laughs> How high are your nuts, motherfucker? Are you kidding me? Your nuts are four feet above your your feet. That's a that's a that's a high okay. anvil. Your nuts. Have you seen the the gif of Alex Steele taking the nut shot, dude? When the handle comes up and cracks him in the nuts, that is Oof. that is I, brutal. I, 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 everybody, said, well, you know, that's it's one rough. of the other reasons why people cut that. their striking anvil, striking hammer handles shorter. So you're not gonna, not gonna happen. I was, he had a, they, he, look, he he took he took it like a champ. And the best part of that video is he got back up right after the strike, but then that creeping ball hit. That you know that just comes your just comes back at you. It's, it's a boomerang effect of pain. His voice he, hasn't been hero. the same since. God damn! My, my hat's off to you, Alex. <laughs> yeah, man. And there we go. So that that's anvils. Yeah, we're not doing any more blacksmith stuff for a while. I've had it. Okay, okay. Unless you really want. So I mean, anvils. I mean, it's another thing that's going to take up space in a workshop, isn't it? You know, so you know, someone like myself who's a knife maker, mainly stock removal. To get into bladesmithing or blacksmithing specifically, I'm going to need some space for an anvil. And I'm struggling with space. And yeah. I, I'm struggling to keep, you know, I've got a small workshop. Keeping that tidy is, is, is difficult. So uh, how do you guys do that? How do you keep things tidy? I know, Jeff, I've, I've heard many people say that yours is, is the tidiest workshop I've ever seen. How do you do that? They're crazy. It's not true. I, I, I try to. One thing is my sister, who is a sculptor, used to tell me about your house and your shop is don't. This is a direct quote. I'm not making it up. Don't shit yourself up with crap. Don't or <laughs> yeah. Don't don't shit it up with crap is what he said. What she said. Don't shit it up with crap. So you really want to make sure you have the tools you need. You don't need. I don't like 
tons of tools that I don't need lying around. I, I, and I also like today, today's Saturday, I actually had a couple customers come in and I, I spent a little time cleaning it up and the less bullshit you have. There you go, Chad. You wanted me to curse. There you go. I curse for you. So the, the uh, what you're trying to do is you just want to try to keep it neat. Hmm. You got to, it's, it, and it, and it, it helps you out. It helps you out keeping things neat. For sure. I think uh, proper ventilation helps keep dust down quite a bit as well, I would say. Um, before I joined Dragon's Breath Forge, I had a, a little 250-square-foot shop. And, uh, I, you know, I kept a, a good-sized fan in my tiny little grinding room. And that pumped – that was cycling air like crazy. Yeah. And any kind of dust that was created in the grinding room never, ever left the grinding room. And uh, that made a huge difference. And uh, and how much of a pain clean, keeping the shop clean was, mm. uh, as well as I think another thing that I do is uh, I keep buckets, and I think Jeff does this too. But I I keep a bucket of water right underneath the grinder to help catch uh, loose metal sparks. Mm. Uh, some people have ventilation or more like vacuum systems and stuff like that. I I don't have an elaborate vacuum system set up yet. Uh, that might be something in the future. But right now, buckets do a pretty good job catching a lot of metal dust. Um, it if you if you try to keep your shop neat, you when you come in the next day, it, you just have a better outlook on life. I used For to be sure. in those metal shops where it was we would stay super late. We had you had sandpaper everywhere. It looked like a real shit house. And when you'd come in in the morning, you'd immediately get depressed. So I really I also try to keep my shop not like old school blacksmith not um, metal shops. I when I have customers come. I want them to be excited, so I keep it very light. I keep it – there's a lot of art on the wall. I try to keep it so they can imagine what I'm doing. But also, when you see people looking like, you know, like a like – a, if it's a total pigsty, they automatically kind of think that you're a pig. <laughs> mm, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I just think that it's it, – it's, I personally, number one, is it makes me feel good when I come into my shop and it's clean. I don't spend a, sh- a ton of time cleaning it, but I do – you know, once a week, I, you know, a half an hour here, half an hour there, you, you'd be surprised at how fast you get it. Hmm. Yeah. And, and do you have any sort of rule that if you leave the shop, all the tools are back where they should be? Anything like that? At all? No, no, I know. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable to have those kinds of things. I just try to like, I try to, you know, I, I keep, you know, the tools that I don't keep, I keep the tools in the area that they're supposed to be in. So, like, where I do have my sanding decks and my sanding sticks and my sandpaper, that's in one spot. I got the drill bits by the drill. I I, I try to keep – and I try, try, try to keep all the tools that I'm never going to use out of that shop. So, like, you know, you, you have a shop and you think, oh, well, you know, I'm a knife maker. I might as well keep my snowblower in here too. That It's like – just you got to, like – you have to, like, dedicate the spot for the stuff, you know. It's not a sculpture shop anymore. You know, I, I don't just have, like – all this, all my sculpture stuff is not in that shop. Like it's only mm. the stuff that I need. Yeah, and it's Makes like you, you, the less stuff you have, the better you're off. Don't shit it up with crap, everybody. But I'm fascinated with other people's workspaces. You know, if people post a picture on Instagram or whatever, I'm always zooming in and seeing. You know, oh, they put that there. They put that there. You know, and I'm always striving to to have the most efficient workspace that I can. Which means I'm always losing stuff. So, you know, I'll turn to the left to pick something yeah. up and, oh, shit, I moved that last week. It's over there now. And it's always in right. constant flux, you know, the whole space. I, I think that, uh, you know, you got to figure it out. And it, it's hard. It sucks. Especially if you worked all day, the last thing you want, you want to go out and have a beer or go see your family or whatever. You don't want to spend the last. But if you, if you keep your shop relatively clean, it's going to pay off mentally. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I think you're going to be mentally clear. It's going to be one of those things that anything that can give you a little mental boost is going to make you more efficient. Got you. I've, I've been trying to do something like along the lines of what Jeff was talking about. You know, keeping things like everything, everything kind of has its place. And if you keep it in that general vicinity, you're not going to be walking all over the shop trying to find that thing. Um, something else I it, it, to to be cleaning up at the end of the day or at the beginning of the day or as you go along, I, it would be too much for me. Uh, just because of the way I am personally and the way I work. Uh, I'm kind of a, a whirlwind uh, when I'm working. But I, when I'm done with a project, I like to try to stop and tidy and clean things back up so that when I start a new project, I'm starting a new build, mm. I have a no, whole new palette to work with, a whole new, uh, you know, uh, it kind of feels like I've just kind of cleansed the whole space in a way and I can start over from new again. You know what? You know what? I thought you were going to say. Then I thought you were going to say, "I have somebody come in to clean up for me." That's the dream. That's the dream. You could do that. You could do that. Every metal shop I've ever been in, we would spend a day cleaning the shop up. Like there'd be just a day that. And like today, I had two customers coming in, and I and I was working. I was hand sanding a lot, and I thought, you know what? Let me just clean the place up before everybody shows up. And and if you have a reason to keep the place clean, like customers coming, I think that that's. I think any reason to get you to kind of clean it up. It's nice for customers to see a clean shop, but it's also, I can't stress enough, the, the mindset you have to have to go, to also to be your own business person, is to is the mindset of, this is my shop, this is my, I should be proud of this shop, but also anything I can do to make me more want to work harder, mm. the clean shop might help. Mm-hmm. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. But, but what you said before is uh, my shop is not like spick and span. It, it is, you know, it's a shit house a lot of times. <laughs> it's beautiful in your shop. It's fine. I'd eat off your floors. Uh, you'd be crazy. I get you the. I got the. You're gonna get lockjaw right afterwards. <laughs> I'll get you a tetanus shot. <laughs> lockjaw, baby. <laughs> so Eating off that shop with all that poo, with all that poo on the floor. Ugh. ugh. So, like I said, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by not not necessarily people's shop floors, but people's shops, their layouts, the way they, they the way they sort things out. So, so share those pictures. Let, let you know, take some pictures of shop. You know, share them with people. Let, let people see them. So, share them to Instagram okay, good or idea. to our forum. I'm I'm just really intrigued to see see where you guys work. I just actually, I did a, right before this. I was, I did an Instagram live and I gave a shop tour. I, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll take some pictures of my shop and then I'll put them up at uh, on the forum. That'd be a good place. That'd be maybe, cool. That would be cool. That'd be a good place. Show us your, show us your shit. That's what you. <laughs> that's the title of that folder. Craig's community showcase. That leads us nicely into <laughs> I community it was gonna be, showcase. I thought, <laughs> I thought it was gonna. I thought you'd be a new bumper for show your shit. Bow. <laughs> that would have been. Do you know what? Next week I'm gonna do some surprise jingles, and I'll just I'll just play them randomly so they'll fit in the right time. But yeah, we've we've. I've perfect. got another maker that I really want to showcase this week. Um, again, I was just stumbling, you know, looking through Instagram, and I stumbled across these guys' knives. So it's um, Lazure knives. So L A S E U R knives. Um, they're American, based in Virginia. Um. Just amazingly clean, clean work. So I'm, I'm just looking through the feed now, and I mean, the last picture they've put up there is a, it's a chef knife. It's this, you know, very traditional Western chef knife, but they've got this bolster that goes the full length of the of the blade, well, the full width of the blade rather, so right down to the heel. 
So it's, you know, it's a little bit different, but it's, it's very traditional looking, but they've got this huge bolster and it's just, it's just really nice. It's not very often you see a style which is just very different to, you know, to others, particularly in something quite traditional, like, you know, a standard Western style chef knife. So take a look, Lazure yeah, knives, sure. L-A-S-E-U-R knives. Um, and I just think there's lots of inspiration there for people. It's, it's very, very clean work. So yeah. So take a look. They make great knives. I've been following them for a while. They they make dynamite knives. Hmm. Really, really nice. Super, super slick. Yeah. As I said, never yeah, seen them very before. Clean work. Came across them just this week, and um, yeah, just amazed at some of the stuff they've got there. Awesome. Okay, so I think we've got some more listeners' questions. Sweet. Um, but actually, before we do that, I mean, we're talking about kitchen knives. And I've been speaking to a few customers this week about, you know, knife care, the best way to look after their knives and so on. So I know you two guys have worked in, it worked in kitchens before. So I'm just wondering how you've seen people sort of manhandle knives and, and what they're doing wrong. There's a few things that I see people using knives and I think, oh, my God, you're doing that, you know. The worst for me is when this, they, they, they'll chop you know, onions, whatever it may be. And then they'll use the blade to scrape off the board, you know, into a ball or something like that. And they're scraping along the length. Ah, that that, that kills me. So I'm just wondering what what you guys have seen that really, really gets your gut. For me, I mean, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff from cutting on ceramics, cutting straight on the stainless steel tabletops. I mean, it's just all, all, all around general misuse. And it's just because I think... People are, especially in a kitchen in a professional restaurant, like depending on if they're in the weeds or not, like somebody just needs something real quick. They don't give a shit about, mm. you know, what kind of knife are they using? Are they cutting on the proper surface? Uh, are they doing a good job of taking care of washing it afterwards? Uh, where is it being stored? Uh, they're not doing any of that stuff. They're they're, they're trying to get, get something done to get turn around and take care of the customer. Um, but I think probably one of the most egregious things I've seen it's just uh, is using a commercial dishwasher to wash dishes, boom, uh, as well as throwing uh, knives into a commercial, like a kitchen, uh, a triple sink uh, to to be washed. Um, and then the other thing would be uh, the storage on a on a metal block or a magnet block. Um, one of the biggest problems is they usually don't have enough of the space on the magnet blocks, so the knives are coming into contact. The cutting edges are mm-hmm. coming into contact with the spines or cutting edges of other knives and or scissors or whatever else they got stuck on there. And they're just dinking it all up. And all of that does is damages that very delicate, super fine edge that you have on your chef's knife. And so anything you can do to kind of prevent that from happening, um, like even just setting up a little station, if a server has to run back to cut up some limes or something like that, have some shit ready for somebody to do some work instead of them scurrying around. Uh, that would make a huge difference. I think the dish machine thing is I've heard from very, very famous chefs that they like a knife that can go in a dish machine, and we've had to have some real heart-to-hearts. That is a crazy thing to do. Unless you're getting those, you know, those very, very inexpensive, like, the kind of knives that, you know, are for, like, a uh, like a cafeteria. I understand that, but that's crazy. One thing that I have had to happen to me with a very famous chef 
is I gave him a knife and I make all my knives with Kydex sheaths. And the reason why is because I think it's, I think they're great for chef knives because a lot of chefs, when they're shoving their knives in their knife roll, they don't have to get, you can buy those little, um, those little protectors at like a, you know, if you go to JB Prince, you can get those protectors that protect your edge. So you can put it in your bag. It's not cutting through your bag, but I do the Kydex sheaths. And one of the things I like about it is you can wash them out. One of these chefs, I gave him a knife to try out. It was a carbon, he wanted, he demanded a carbon steel knife. He wanted a carbon steel knife, carbon steel knife. I gave it to him in a Kydex sheath. He, whatever he, he cut and did his thing and did service and then, and then he shoved it back in the Kydex sheath and it just like rotted in that Kydex sheath. And it was like, it, the, the one thing that these guys do is they don't like, I don't think that they're aware of, you know, especially with carbon steel that they're not like wiping it down and putting it away so he, i get i get back the knife and he look i look in and there was like there's like ravioli inside the kydex sheath it was like like yo come on what are you doing i think that that's also a problem with the wooden size because a lot of these guys get the wooden size because they think that they're like you know samurais or something in the on the line and i think that they don't what they don't wipe their knives down before they stick it in the saya and if you get gunk in your saya baby that's a that's a bad that's a bad situation you know you get some you get that you get that funk in that you get your funk in the saya you got some problems baby you get some botulism and shit well and i think you just made a great point right there is like the the environment i think should inform what kind of guard you use if you're going to use if you're in a production kitchen on the line, you know, an edge guard's probably good because you can get in there and spray it out pretty easily. Yeah. Uh, but if you're going to be at home, uh, you're going to take the time to clean it off and all that stuff. And you can and you can take that time to do that. Then a saya or, you know, a kydex sheath or whatever, a leather sheath even, those probably make more sense in a home environment. But the kydex you can wash out. The leather yeah, and the wood, you're fucked. Mm. Yeah, the leather and the wood, you're gonna you're gonna put some well, noodle it, in your kugel and you're gonna get trouble, man. You can't put all that gunk in the, it, in your tip. Definitely baby. definitely uh requires more attention from the uh the user for sure. But mm. yeah. do you guys ever get pushback from let's say a restaurant has contacted you, they want some let's say some tableware, some whether they're steak knives, you know, flat knives, whatever it may be. Do you ever get pushback saying, Well, you know, they need to go in a washer? You know, how would how would you deal with that? I've actually had uh, somebody most uh, pretty recently say, you know, we want a, a bunch of knives, um, but they need to be hand- be able to handle this, that, and the other thing. Mm. And I told – the dishwasher situation did not come up. And I actually uh, – from their end, so I brought it up that uh, they're going to want to hand wash these knives. Otherwise, they're not going to last very long. And it completely negates the purpose of having a handmade thing. Yeah. Uh, because if you got to throw it away a few months later, like what the hell was the point of that? Um, but that might so not. I be, just hand washing might not be might might not work with the health department. Mm, right. Well, there, possibly, I mean, there yeah. is the triple yeah. sink. There's the triple sink system. They could set that up. At least last time I was working in a restaurant, that was still a valid way of washing and sanitizing things. Um. So. Yeah, no, for sure. I look the the only thing that I've ever I actually talked to the Voltaggio brothers about doing some uh, steak knives for one of their things, and I was more about you know you just know that people are going to walk with them, and I think that your boy uh, Adam Lang Perry had that problem because they would have um, you know people want to you know they want to take stuff, so hmm. so a lot of these guys are gonna you know they're gonna be very stealable. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, and I, when I visited Adam Perry Lang's restaurant in L.A. a few weeks back, uh, 
um, he had said that they've had um, four attempts and um, nobody's ever walked away with one though. <laughs> they've uh, they've got that place on pretty good lock. Well, with he also he also made the over. price of each one like nine hundred bucks, so it's like you're it's like a felony or something like that. But the way you have to what you have to do is you have to train your waiter. Like you you don't you don't you know if you don't get the four if you're a table a four top. And you're, before mm-hmm. you get that bill, there better be four knives coming back to the kitchen. Yep. But they got to sharpen exactly them. What they do. You know, I love the idea of making beautiful um, uh, steak knives for restaurants. But there are you have to work within the confines of what the what's going to happen. Mm. Yeah, mm. they got to be sharpened. Yeah. A lot of them aren't going to be serrated. How are you going to make a hundred serrated? You know, a hundred serrated. <laughs> Steak knives. Nobody wants a serrated right. steak knife. Nobody wants. Well, you, so they, so your, their staff is now has to sharpen them too. Yes. And what I don't know if you're charging well, 100 bucks at, a pop, you gotta, you know, they gotta sharpen yeah. them as well. Mm. Mm. Well, and at Adam's restaurant, uh, APL, he does all the sharpening of all the knives. I know he's got like a he's got a two by seventy two grinder in that kitchen. I once commented, I asked him if he had a, a, a nasal four B in the kitchen too, and he says, "No, that's in my shop." <laughs> It's an N4. You know, all right, I think all right. it's hard. It, w- it wouldn't be a show if we didn't mention Florentine kitchen knives because <laughs> we mention them every week so far. But you know what he does? Oh, so guy. he's got Nick Brill, who um, he has Florentine knives in his restaurant, which is an amazing restaurant. Um, but what they also do, they actually sell the knives then as well. So I think that's a really good take on it. So Great idea. You know, it's an expensive restaurant. If you go into this restaurant, you're not there to, to steal things, you know? Um, but You'd be surprised. Maybe, maybe. But if you do want a knife, you can, you can, you can buy one before you leave. Well, it's like a, it's like a memento. Hmm. Yeah. You've had a great meal, so take, take something home, yeah. yeah. I've got to be honest. I've, I've nicked some hot sauce from a restaurant that <laughs> when, I taste, when I tasted it, I was like, it blew my mind. So I was like, you, I got to take this. Would you, this just, did you take the bottle or you just pour some out in your hand and walk out with a, with a handful of hot <laughs> in sauce? Your pockets. I took the bottle. <laughs> Pull up, come on, baby. I'm going to scoop out my hand on a handful of pot sauce to take with me. <laughs> so we're having um, stealing lessons from Morocco, uh, which leads yeah, us nicely on to Morocco's little section. Yeah. Ah, shit, shit. That's the old... That's, <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> that, sound, that sound like a bunch of farts. <laughs> that's the old jingle. Right. Oh, shit, shit, shit. That's great. Tomorrow, right. I'm going to make shit. a new jingle, which is Mareko's notes to a young knife maker, and I'm going to drop this in for this bit. Fuck. So I imagine. Mareko's <laughs> notes to a young knife maker. <laughs> mm. Sultry. <laughs> Okay, so last week uh, I talked about forging versus stock removal um, and my advice to uh, for especially new people to start with stock removal. And so I, I'm going to kind of continue on that theme. And um, a lot of a lot of people reach out and they ask, you know, what style of knives should I start making? And uh, especially if you're just getting into it, you're learning. I would advise, you know. Learn how to make the knife that you know the best. So if you're out in the woods all the time, make bushcraft knife. If you're hunting and fishing all the time, make hunting and fishing style knives that are designed for gutting and breaking down those animals. If you cook, uh, and you cook a lot, um, I would focus on kitchen knives. And then as you, at least just to start, uh, so that you're building something, you know how it should be used. And then you can branch out. Mm-hmm. But I, 
the unfortunate thing I see are a lot of people, especially with culinary knives, is making culinary knives, but they're not. Uh, they're, but they're making knives that look like chef's knives, but they don't necessarily perform like chef's knives. And the way you can make at work if you don't have that background is establish relationships with people, and not just one chef. I've seen people just work from one chef's perspective. I advise getting at least four, five, six people that you can get your work to to get a very well-rounded opinion on how uh, a chef's knife should feel and perform um and then also you know spend time on forums um but all the different genres of knives have all these kind of people that you can reach out to and connect to maybe you have family members who uh, are cooks or hunters and if you want to really focus in in either of those style knives you reach out to that person and say look i want to make this hunting knife I, don't re- I mean, I understand how to make a knife, but I don't know how to make a great hunting knife. Mm. And I really want to make a great hunting knife. And so by reaching out to these people and establishing that, that feedback and that relationship is going to help you make uh, the best possible tool you can in that way. And, you know, I make chef's knives because that's what I know best. But I would love to learn more about hunting knives, uh, you know, bushcraft knives, not just like the big choppers and camp knives you see on like Forge Fire or something, but like like a real, like uh, I have friends who are bushcrafters uh, who they they prefer, you know, a three or four inch knife. And I'm like, well, what the hell is that? Why? And so I need to get out into the woods with them, cruise around and figure out, you know, why is that and how are they using that tool? What does it need to be able to endure um, and that also then informs edge geometry, heat treat, all that kind of stuff. Handle style, you know, the same handle style for one knife isn't going to fit and work for another. Um, so that you know would base that, that's my basic thing for this week. If you're getting it, if you're getting into knives and knives, and you wanna you're you're wondering what knife to learn how to make first, start with what you know best, or who you have available to you. I guess would be the other one. Maybe you don't know anything about any knives. Um, Just to hop anyways. in on that, when I started making yeah, oyster yeah. knives, when I started making oyster knives, I started making oyster knives based on the oyster knives I was using in culinary school. And then I got hooked up with these dudes down in uh, um, the Chesapeake Bay area. And they say, hey, 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 we don't open up oysters from behind. We, we open them from the side. And I started learning from these guys how they open mm. and what the differences between a, a farm-raised oyster and an old oyster are totally different. An old oyster has a, de- a harder shell. A farm-raised is a lighter shell. So when you meet these professionals, a lot of these guys are going to give you tricks and tips that say, mm. hey, listen, what you're doing ain't going to work over here listen to me right yeah Makes no more butt shucking you can't we can't butt shuck these these oysters over here we need to go from the side that's a real that's a real expression butt shucking is a real expression that's what butt it's called shucking. when you when you open it from the hinge you're, you're shucking that butt you got me <laughs> well and i'm from the pacific northwest west which is home of the pacific and uh the olympia oysters and everything i've ever seen is all from the butt yeah, and, so. <laughs> and then they're smaller too. Some oyster knives are longer because the oysters yeah. are longer. Some are smaller because they're smaller. You got to get in touch with these people because all of a sudden you're you're out. You know, you might as well just use a screwdriver. Yeah, and you've got to be the expert, right? If that's what you're making, you need to be able to educate your customer too on these things. That, being talking to these guys about the different styles of shucking oysters totally help me be able to steer someone in the right direction of what kind of oyster knife they're going to want to use mm. and it's going to be the same thing with every other kind of knife yeah yeah mm-hmm. that leads us really 100%. nicely to we've got a few listeners questions that have come in and pioneer road asked 
He's a maker. He asked, should I stick with one style, like a Japanese style or a Western style, or should I master making them all? I think that, I think you know, I also come at it because I was a sculptor and I, try, I liked doing different things. I think it's good to try to, like, you know, try new things out. And, and what happens is you always learn something from something. So I, I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of just doing one thing and then, and then you don't do another thing until you, you know, dip your toe in. Get your, I say try a little bit of everything, you know, mm. see what works for you. And you might, you might find a trick that's going to help you to make, you know, your other knives better. Like, yeah. yeah, don't. You and I think you do what you when you're do. just starting out as well, I think, yeah, try everything because then you're going to develop a style of your own. Because, you know, I've said this before right. that there's, there's only so many ways you can shape something that's sharp and pointy that's made to cut. They're all going to look pretty similar. Yeah. But, I mean, if you look at... And you're a, never going to really master anything. Yeah, yeah. And if you look at, you know, at, at different makers, they've all got something that's just, that's just theirs, you know? Something that's slightly different to everybody else. So, so try as much as you can, see what works for you, and then, you know, then, you know, dive deep into that then and just make that better and better as you go. I mean, I that's what I'd say. I message. Hmm. Yeah. Variety is the spice of life, my man. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Hashtag butt shucking. That's it, baby. And dick sling. That's up right there with dick swinging dicks. Stick swinging and butt shucking, baby. Knife talk. <laughs> We've got another one from uh, Props TM. Um, and I think this came from Instagram. Um, it's saying, assuming I'm not a pro chef, um, what's the best way to improve knife cutting skills? And you just buy a big mm. bag of onions. I mean, that's what I'd say. Buy a big bag of onions and, <clears throat> and just mince your way through. I think yeah, that also I, I agree. A, a lot of culinary schools are trying to figure out cheaper ways to get people into taking classes. So they'll do something like I know a lot of culinary schools do like a, a, a date night where you can you and your your uh, somebody will go in for for a night for a couple hours and you'll they'll give you some wine and then they'll give you some cutting uh, knife uh, cut food cutting tips and I, I think that there are there are ways in which there are a lot of people who do teach knife skills classes and they're relatively inexpensive or just watch youtube videos with wine knife knife classes with wine i thought about that as soon as that came out of my mouth i thought this is a terrible idea wow new yorkers different breed i've seen it uh no i i totally agree on that i think practice makes proficient and we're actually at least in the northeast we're getting up into soup season so, uh, you know, start working on brunoise and batonet and, you know, all these different kinds of cuts with your carrots, celery, onions, whatever. Uh, and then use them, you know, throw them in the freezer. Use them when you start making a, a soup base or whatever hmm. uh, or whatever else you're cooking. Um, but I think just practicing is going to help with proficiency. And, you know, a lot of the top chefs out there, they they don't necessarily have the best knife skills they they have the creative mind that comes up with the recipe Hmm. they have skills that get them by but i think you know what's more important is consistency of a cut and i think a lot of people are concerned with speed Uh, and i think again speed comes with proficiency just like when you're learning how to type on a keyboard um so yeah also the ergonomics of your the ergonomics of your knife is going to determine how you're cutting too like mm-hmm. that's the funny thing. It's like if you think about like that's the reason why when you're using a Western style handle, 
uh, Western style full tang knife, you might have a little bit more versatility in, in, in the comfort and how you're using your knife with the knife skills as opposed to if you're using some, you know, you got yourself one of them, one of them long ass not y- Yanagis, you ain't going to be doing the same thing. So your knife is going to help dictate how you're going to, to, um, to do your knife cuts. Mm. Right. Yeah. And I, I'd add well, to that as yeah. well. It's not just yeah. knife cutting skills. I think it's, I mean, we talked about looking after your knife, but, you know, develop the skills to, the skills to sharpen a knife as well, which a lot of chefs don't have. There was, I, I've seen it shared so many times this week, the, um, the Gordon Ramsay t- teaching a, a chef how to sharpen a knife. And he's just hammering the hell out of this thing against some steel. Um, so I think that's something we could maybe talk about next week is, you know, sharpening skills for chefs. I think that could be a good, a good topic. Yes. That sounds good. So we got, we got one more question and this is, I think this is a great question actually, because this is something that, um, yeah, I, I, I feel. So Sandy from Young Knives um, makes great knives, but um, he's asked that he's in a bit of a, a knife making funk at the moment. Um, he just can't seem to get back into the swing of things after taking a few months out. I know for Sandy, it's it's a part-time thing for him. He, ha- he has a full-time job as well. Um, so he's, he's asking, has this happened to us before? Have we been sort of fed up of making <laughs> knives? And if so, how did you get back on the horse? Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be first with this because this, this happened to me a few months back. Where I was just, I think it's one of those things where you look at people's feeds and you see so, many, so, so much beautiful work and you think, man, I'm not up there yet, you know, and it can get you down. So actually, I reached out to Jeff, actually, and Jeff basically told me, you just need to get just get back on the horse and just, just grind some knives out, mm-hmm. and it'll come back. And that's exactly what happened. So, yeah, mm-hmm. so I think, Sandy, you just need to spend some more time making knives, and, you'll, you know, that'll come back to you. You'll, you'll develop that passion again. Sometimes I try to take the passion out of it, and I think that w- I, I really try to make it – I tr- don't see my shop as some mystical bullshit – you know, from some fantasy. I I see it like a metal shop. And, I, and I'm telling you, a lot of these people, they show up, they think it's like fucking Thor and lightning bolts and high fives, and it's not the case. I think that you, I think that if you, if you, you just, you know, if you apply yourself and really think of this is in the morning, I wake up and I, and I, and I, I walk my dogs and for that 45 minutes, I'm envisioning exactly what I need to get done that day i really like focus on envisioning what i have to do so when i get to the shop i'm not just fucking around fiddling around see the chat i'm cursing don't worry chat i'm cursing what i because otherwise if i just showed up to my shop with no plan i'm just gonna be forging all day and then i'm not gonna be making any knives you have to have a game plan first thing in the morning say this is what i'm gonna get done and that's just the way it is because if you show up to your shop willy-nilly you're out you're going to make mm. hammers or something. You're going to fool around. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look at that power hammer. I'm going to say, hey, baby, I haven't used you in a while. And then it's going to be, I'm not going to get anything done. I uh, I agree with the the whole like making a list or ha- having something ready or in your mind uh, when you get to the shop. And the way I've been able to make that work for me, uh, especially when it comes to needing to be really productive, is making a list actually the night before so that when I show up, to the shop. I have a plan. I know what I need to get done. There's no sitting around while I'm trying to figure out my coffee and, you know, what the hell am I supposed to be doing? Uh, you know, I have that plan laid out. And so I just need to start implementing it. That's part uh, of efficiency. It, That's part of efficiency yeah. is the efficiency of your mind. Hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and the, so then when it comes to getting into a rut, I've definitely gotten into a rut 
I, I go in and out of ruts uh, myself. And but one of the the first ones that was really bad was just at like a year or so after I started working on my own, and um, I just had gotten to a point where I was coming into the shop doing the same thing every day, and it started really feeling like a job. And I don't know if this is the position that Sandy's coming from. Uh, well, I guess you guys said that he's full time or he's part time. Mm, yeah. Uh, but if he has a bunch of orders sitting in front of him, I can see how that I know how that can be overwhelming and uninspiring. And a friend uh, really gave me some great advice, and he said that you need to stop and and spend send, set some time aside for yourself for your own kind of creative projects. And so whether that's uh, you know you build up time. Uh, you know, 15 minutes a day and maybe at the end of the week you spend a few hours working on stuff or uh, or you just, you know, every couple weeks you spend two two or three days working on some shit. Um, you know, whatever it is, I think what really has helped me break out of ruts is to uh, set that time aside to just work on my own things, work out a pattern that I've been wanting to work out in Damascus or forge out a blade that I've never forged before and I saw somebody do and I thought was really cool. Um, but I think ultimately, it, especially when I get into ruts, when it comes to my production, I just got to stop fucking around on my phone or, you know, talking to people. I work in a shop with other people. I just need to get to work. And mm. once I get to work, fixes itself. Yeah. 100%. Hey, so, Sandy, yeah. Sandy, I'm going to talk to you for a second. You get yourself close to me. Listen to me, Sandy. <laughs> Here's what I want you to do. I want you to get your mind right, baby. I want you to get your mind right. I want you to vision what you need to do, and you're going to be ni- in nips and titties all day. You're going to be all squared away, baby. Nips and titties, Sandy. You're going to be all squared away, my man. Come on, baby. That's Mr. Miyagi shit, that, with nips and titties. Nice, nice. <laughs> that's, an inside, that's, a, that's an inside joke. That's for Sandy. Nips and titties for Sandy. He's good. You're good, Sandy. Get back in there. Yeah, I think it's a Scottish reference. I think so. So I think we're done. I think, again, we're over an hour. Jeff, Jeff, oh, what are you doing to us? <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Hey, people love it. Come on, baby. They're going to want it. They're Pretty soon they're going to want it twice a week, two hours. This is good. One hour is good. It is. It's, it's, yeah, it works. One hour works. So I, just a couple of quick reminders for people. If you want an even heat, and obviously you want an even heat. Why wouldn't you want an even heat? Um, you're going to need some discounts. So go to soulceramics.com forward slash knife talk and claim that discount and get yourself a shiny new even heat. Um, if you've got for any sure. questions for us, go to knifetalk.net and stick them on the forum or you can contact us on Instagram. Um, That's it, baby. I think we're done. I think we're done. I think maybe Jeff wants to talk about, you know, his favorite fighter. The You know. Oh. Yeah. All right, you know, Listen, I'm Jeff's doing it real quick, and then Jeff's I, I know exci- you guys don't want to. Jeff's I'm been excited about the, a big fight tonight, which is right. fake wrestling. I'm, right? I'm, 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 I'm fake speaking wrestling to you. I'm speaking to you from the past. This is Saturday night. This is right before the Conor McGregor Khabib Nurmagomedov fight, and this is my prediction: either Conor McGregor gets the knockout in the first round, or Khabib drags it to the third and gets a stoppage. That's the two predictions I have, and that's all I got, and that's all I'm going to say. I'm with you. But uh, the result's already decided, surely, you know? The, the, <laughs> I've seen a few gonna, of these things. Get, these are, these are, <laughs> this is, you're going to get trouble. Everybody, that's Craig. If you've got a problem, send it. You're, probably, you're anger to Craig. It's, it's, some, it's some real <laughs> real fighting right here. Men in cages with their underwear. With not hardly anything on, beating the shit out of each other. All right. 
<laughs> I can't take it anymore. I've had enough. I've had enough. Nips and titties, let's get the hell out of here. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.